morning as we reintroduce at least one uh, aspect of it. For y'all who don't know, these are my parents. I do have a picture of my family up on the screen now, but for some reason it's not showing. Uh, my wife uh, gives me a hard time because I have a picture of my parents up on my, <laughs> uh, my computer screen. But <clears throat> so let me pull this up here, and then we're going to pray, and then we'll begin. We all introduce yourselves. I met you coming in the door, but uh, your friends are Tim and Robbins? Okay. Great. So y'all are just down visiting? Good. Good. Well, we're glad that you're here with us uh, this morning. Uh, so just so you know, this is, um, this is not a sermon that we're just walking through this. So any questions, comments, uh, feel free always to stop and uh, interject something that is unclear, something that you have a question about or whatever. Uh, let's begin, though, again one more time in prayer and ask God's favor. For our time here. Father, we do realize that we um, come to you dependent and needy always. Uh, what do we have that we have not received? As Paul asked the Corinthian church, um, we acknowledge the same, that we have received everything from you. We've received our very existence. We, our, we receive our life, our sustenance. Uh, even more, we receive our spiritual life from you, having experienced the grace of new birth by the Holy Spirit, our present union with Christ by the same Spirit, and our hope to be with you in glorification forever in your presence, beholding your face, seeing you as you are, because we will be like you and know the full completion of our redemption. And Father, even those things are known to us because you have revealed them to us, the very truth that we will be briefly considering uh, this morning. Help us to Grow in our understanding of all that you have given to us in your word. Father, these are not simply truths that inform our mind, but they are the very truths, even as we sung this morning, standing on the promises of God that are the bedrock of our life here. How we deal with life, how we view this world, how we act in our relationships, our parenting, the things that we pursue, the things that we love, the things that motivate our will, that occupy our mind, that occupy our time, are all those truths, hopefully, that we know and grow in knowing that you have revealed to us in your word. So help us this morning, help me this morning to say things that are helpful and true, help all of us to sit at your feet and to learn uh, more about the glory of this book that we have in our hand. More importantly, the glory of the God behind this book and who is even now causing these words uh, to do its work in this world and hopefully in our lives. We thank you for your son whom you crushed for our sin and rose from the dead, raised from the dead for our life. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right. So this is was part of a series, Theology and Life. This is... Um, Particularly where I think we began, which was with the doctrine of Scripture. So you'll see there it says revelation, inspiration, canonization, and transmission. We're only going to briefly consider this morning uh, revelation. Revelation. Now, it's popular in modern culture to see every religion, and not only religion, but spiritualities, plural, uh, quote-unquote, 
uh, offer some knowledge about God or some sincere attempt to uh, know God. And we hear often in our ecumenical mindset, that is the idea that says we all need to find common ground and put aside our differences and join uh, hands, uh, we hear often said that some truth about God can be found in all of them, right? Have we heard that? Right? There's some truth of God in Buddhism. So even Billy Graham, that uh, revered uh, person in American culture, uh, says, you know, a Buddhist can be uh, no God as long as they serve God sincerely within their knowledge of Him within Buddhism. And you hear those kind of things repeated uh, over and over. So that, that is common in our, in our time. Uh, in American culture, it, it tends to be more individualistic. In other words, I have my view of God. I have the way that I approach God. I have the way that I relate to God. And that's sort of mine. And that's my own little private territory. And uh, I may listen to how you do that and, you know, take what I can gain from that. But basically, me and God, we have our own thing going on. And I'm, and I'm happy with that. How often have you been in witnessing conversations? Uh, and, uh, well, I'm happy with my relation with God right now. Though they totally reject everything that you've just shared from, from God's Word. But I'm happy. I'm comfortable. I'm comfortable in my relationship with, with God, which is uh, not good uh, often when the people say that because what they're believing and pursuing uh, does not fit who God is. We've probably all heard statements like this. Uh, I'll get affirmation by the nodding of the head or the swagging of the head back and forth. Uh, my God is loving, too loving to do this. My God is too loving to judge sinners. My God is too loving to, uh, to have eternal punishment be a reality. Uh, we, that's become popular or not too uh, in far in the distant past because of a book, a guy from out of the emerging church, Rob Bell, who uh, wrote a book that denied eternal punishment of sin. Or you hear statements like this, to me God is, or I pray to God in my own way. You know, often I pray to God in my own way when I go out. I don't really go to church or do the Bible as much, but, you know, I, I really commune with God, like especially when I'm out in nature or doing things like that. I really feel close to God out there, and that's how uh, I get close to Him. Or, a little bit more to the point of what we'll be looking at this morning, maybe we've been in Bible studies, and maybe at one time we ourselves have said things like, uh, and, and we know this, uh, to me that passage means this. I think it's saying this. Well, there's a place for that as long as what you're working towards is what it actually says. But very often that is left on its own in many Bible studies. And whatever that individual said is taken to be as legitimate as what anybody else says. And what gets demoted in all of that is what God has actually said and what God actually means by what he says. And that is uh, what we want to uh, know and understand when we come uh, to Scripture. Uh, as it's been said, for many, many times over, that the meaning of Scripture is the Scripture. The meaning of Scripture is the Scripture. If we don't understand the meaning of the text, then we don't have the Word of God. When we understand the meaning of the text, to that degree we understand and have and know God's voice and God's words uh, to us. Now in all of these things that I've mentioned, those statements, there's an underlying assumption that the knowledge of God is something that can be gained apart from the authoritative and objective revelation of God that stands outside of us it stands outside of our personal intuition, our feelings, our assumptions, or whatever false criteria we might bring to it. The Word of God is objectively true. Uh, so a way to think of that is 
and is whether we stand over God's word or whether we stand under God's word. I was recently reminded because of conversations that uh, we very often uh, will ask questions or some will ask questions not to sit under God's word and let God's word instruct them, but only to see with whether God's word agrees with what they already think is true and what they want to believe. They'll go like, I can agree with that. <laughs> Who cares whether you agree with that? That's not the point. It's, it's, that's true. This is what God has said. And so as a believer, we are humble before the word of God. And why, even as believers, we might discuss it and have different views that we discuss. If it's a true believer, the center of authority and all of that is still going to be scripture. You're going to argue and you're going to reason and you're going to think based on scripture. And so God's revelation to us is um, true, it is objectively true, and it is uh, authoritative. So... And just as a footnote there, when we, when we try to approach evangelism, now, now we reason from the scriptures, and we need to have reasons for why we believe, and we need to understand those reasons, and we need to apply ourselves to understanding them. So evidence for creation, evidence for uh, the scriptures and how God providentially maintained his word through the centuries, which is what would be covered under transmission. Those things are all important, but we don't convince somebody to believe, become a Christian. That, that's not what we do. The Holy Spirit convinces them of their sin and of the truth of God and of the truth of His Word, and He produces in them faith. What we are is we are clear with that. But whenever we make those scriptures and what God has clearly said secondary in our evangelism and reason primary, we've just denied the reality of the fallenness of man, and we've just given too much credit to man's fallen reason as if that were what keeps them from God. Does that make sense uh, to y'all? If that doesn't, if you don't know what I'm talking about there, just uh, please tell me. So the point is, is that God's word is our authority. And that is what God uses to bring us forth. He brings us forth by the word of truth and he sanctifies us by the word of truth. And he preserves us by that same word of truth. Now, so what we think about God on our own is really um, irrelevant outside of what God has revealed about himself. Now then, as Christians, we confess that Christianity is a revealed religion. It's a revealed religion. In other words, we didn't come up with it on our own. And while this isn't uh, an apologetics uh, talk, it is worthy to note that the very uniqueness of the Christian understanding of God as a triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, stands against every other false religion. The uniqueness of redemption in Christianity as a revealed truth of, of God in Christ that God has accomplished for us what we cannot accomplish on our own that eliminates works, that eliminates any man's any attaining righteousness or salvation is utterly unique from every other religion in the world. The God-man, Jesus Christ, one who is fully God and fully man, even one who created man in his image, is utterly unique of any religion in the world. There are commonalities that all of them share. None of them share these things with Christianity. We could go down this list. That very fact alone says there's something different here. There's something unique. There's something here that stands apart from whatever uh, religion that man has developed on their own under the influence of demons. And that is a biblical truth. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, it is the doctrine 
or it is demons that they're actually worshiping in their idolatry in the Corinthian temples. In 1 Timothy 4, he says it's the doctrine of demons, and so on and so forth. So there is the revealed word of God, and then there is everything else. And for Christians, we stand on those promises, and we stand on that truth, that God's word and God's word alone is our authority. It is there alone that he has spoken to us. It's not something we go off in some mystical experience in the corner or out in the woods. It is... The Word of God, the revealed Word of God, ultimately um, pointing to His revelation of Himself in Christ. So we believe that the eternal, infinite, holy, almighty God has spoken. He has revealed Himself to man, and He has done so in a book, primarily, in a book. Ultimately, as I mentioned, He's done this in the person of Jesus Christ, the second member of the Trinity, made flesh. But even so, even Christ is known, explained, and understood only through his self-revelation contained in the pages of a book. So while it is true that he has revealed him, John said in John 1, 14 through 18, it, we know that revelation because it's written down right, right here in a book, right? We weren't there. We didn't see him. We didn't talk to him. We didn't listen to him. We didn't observe his miracles. We didn't observe any of that. But as John said, these things were written that you might believe. Right? That he is the son of God. That he is everything that uh, he said he was. Now if I scoot around here, I somehow have misplaced my Bible. Um, I'll use this one. Uh, anyway. If anybody sees a black leather Bible in the fuse, <laughs> let me know. Because I've lost mine between this last ten minutes somewhere. Anyway, okay, so now this is going to be new to some then and familiar to others, the things that we'll talk about. But I hope that for all of us, it's a fresh reminder of the glorious realities of the Word of God and what we have in Scripture, what we have in the Bible, what God has given to us. The incredible reality of this book that we hold in our hands, which is too often taken... Oh, <laughs> thank you, Ray. Yeah. Um, which is too often taken by us for granted. It's too often taken for us by, for, by us for, for granted. And so I hope for everyone this will be a fresh reminder of the glorious truth of Scripture. So I'm going to watch the clock. I'm going to try to finish all of this, as I said, because we're only going to have this week. And, uh, but please don't let that stop you at any point from uh, asking questions or interjecting uh, if you don't do that, I'm going to simply keep walking through. Okay. First of all, then, let's define revelation. A definition of revelation it comes from, in the Greek anyway, a term we'd be more familiar with, apocalypsis. Um, that's transliterated there. It has the basic meaning of uncovering what was concealed, uh, to make known what was unknown, or knowable what was unknowable. We have a great verse that all of us have probably memorized in Deuteronomy 29, 29. Uh, does anybody have that memorized that would like to, and you, you can say it in the King James because I'm sure that's how it's in all of our brains. Deuteronomy 29, well let me just read it for your sake of uh, time here unless you beat me there. He says this, speaking to his people Israel. Whom he's called in relationship with himself, God says, The secret things belong to the Lord, but the things revealed belong, or Moses is saying this, 
The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of the law. In other words, there are things about God that are unknowable because God is God. He's infinite. But what can be known about God and what He wants to reveal of Himself to us is revealed to us on the pages of Scripture. And for that knowledge, we are responsible. We have the great privilege of having and we have the great responsibility of knowing and believing and obeying. So God is of himself unknowable, but he has made himself known primarily through scripture. We'll look at some other things too. I know you probably have some thoughts going through your mind, but primarily through uh, scripture and through revelation. Uh, the self-disclosure, this would be a, maybe a summarized way to say it. The self-disclosure, to, um, excuse me, this would be a succinct way of defining revelation. The self-disclosure of God making known what would otherwise be unknown. Okay? The self-disclosure of God making known what would otherwise be unknown. And so we'll, we'll actually say a few more things about that down the road. Why is revelation necessary? Why is revelation necessary? Well, I already touched on one of these. First of all, because God is infinite and man is finite. Because God is infinite and man is finite. You know this verse in Isaiah 55. Uh, I think verse 9. Let me, let me read it to you. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. God is up here and we are down here. Uh, what we know is because God has revealed it to us, and it must be that way. It could be no other way. Who has ever given to God that it should be paid back to Him? Who has ever counseled God that He would need their counsel? No one. Why? Because God gives wisdom. He gives counsel. He gives knowledge. He does not receive it from us. We are the receivers. He is the giver. God is infinite, and man is finite. And so if God does not make some motion toward us to reveal himself, then we have no knowledge. We have no ability or means uh, to know him. God must make that first motion. We won't read all of those, Job. You can see if you can't see them. Job 28, 12 through 28 is there. 1 Corinthians 2, 9 through 10. And, and that is a very key verse. Let's just briefly look at that passage. 1 Corinthians 2, 9 through 10 uh, Paul is saying this, he says, we speak God's wisdom and it's a mystery hidden and, other, and it's something that uh, the rulers of this world did not know and it's something that fallen man, which we'll go into our next point, doesn't know. But here speaking to believers, he says, uh, but God, in verse 10, revealed them through the Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. A good verse for the, both the role of the Spirit within the Trinity and His deity. Who could search the depths of God but one who is equal to him? And who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the spirit of God. And then he goes on to say the spirit has revealed these to us through the words he has given. In verse 13, and we are these things we also speak. In other words, the gospel and the truth that, that Paul is as an apostle of Christ giving them. Not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. 
So in other words, God must reveal himself, and then on top of that, that revelation can only be known and understood as the Spirit of God makes it so. That leads to the next point. Why do we need revelation? Because not only is there an infinite gap between God and man that requires him to make motions towards us in revelation, he's the giver, we're the receiver, but also, since Genesis 3, there is an added uh, break uh, between us and God that requires God to make uh, that first motion toward us. And that is because man has fallen and Satan is a deceiver. Now, you know, that's important to put those two things together because very often uh, we, we uh, focus only on the first one, which is right because that is the, the, the situation that we're in. Man has fallen and sin darkens the understanding. Sin makes the heart dead to the truth of God deadens the will, uh, the noetic effects of sin, that is um, from the Greek word for the mind, it means that it, sin affects our reasoning, our thinking ability, that's why you don't reason somebody into the kingdom, you proclaim the gospel and truth, you defend that gospel with reason, but it's the gospel that's the center stage and that's what the Spirit of God will use to convict someone and to bring them to faith in Christ and what he uses daily in our lives to mature us and grow us in our faith. Uh, but because man has fallen and Satan is a deceiver. Now man innately has a sense of the eternal. Ecclesiastes 3.11, God has set eternity in the heart. Why do we have so many religions? Why is man naturally religious man? Why can secular humanism and materialism, as much as an effect as it has had in many other ways, can't kill that religious impulse in man? Can't kill that spiritual... As a matter of fact, a lot of those who believe that, still have some sort of spirituality they end up adopting. Um, because you can't kill it. We're made in the image of God. That's in the heart of man. Therefore, the prompting of religious expression in man is simply a part of being made in the image of God. Because man is made in the image of God, he has both the capacity and the impulse to know him. To know him. That's what is uh, always uh, in, in, uh, compelling man to have some religious expression or expression of spirituality. But because of sin, man is unable to come to a right understanding of God on their own. We need outside information, and we need an inside work of God in the heart, as Paul just said in 1 Corinthians 2. If we are to know him correctly, we need God to speak to us. Now, interestingly, the idea of revelation is present in every religion. And again, this gives testimony to the fact that we as creatures need a knowledge of God or information that it's unattainable on our own. So even though there are false ideas of revelation in other religions, it still shows that man has this innate sense of, I need God to give me something to know him. Uh, that's just, that's just uh, how we were created. We need God to speak to us. But because man has fallen, because sin has the effects that it does on us, uh, we're not going to reason ourselves to God. We're not going to reason ourselves to God. And because Satan is a deceiver, we will believe what is false. We will believe what is false. Genesis 3, 1 through 6, we, as man, believed what is false without any precondition of sin. From a state of untested holiness, as it's sometimes called, or state of without sin, but with the possibility to sin, uh, we sinned. And we sinned because we believed the lie. Uh, now we are born with the condition already with a proclivity or a bent or um, uh, a movement toward sin, 
And so the deceptive, deceptive power of Satan is even that much greater exercised on us. That's why he says in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they may not see the glory of God, the glory of God in the face of Christ. So Satan is a deceiver. You can look up those other verses. 2 Corinthians 11, 1 through 3, Ephesians 4, 17, Ephesians 6, 1 through 3, and, and other verses you could go to, but you can write those down. So, we need God to speak to us if we're going to know Him. That is under the category of revelation. Revelation. So, let's look briefly, types of revelation. There is what theologians call general revelation. Has everybody heard of general revelation? That term, general revelation. Uh, Let me just remind us. General revelation, it's general because it's information about God available to all peoples at all times in all places. In other words, there are things, and we'll look at this, that Scripture says are, is truth about God, truth that He's given to us by which He may be known, that is available to all men. Everybody. Everybody. One has described it this way. This is a great definition. Definition. Disclosure of God in nature, in providential history, and in the moral law within the heart, whereby all persons and, and all time, at all times and all places gain a rudimentary understanding of the Creator and His moral demands. I'll say that again. Disclosure of God in nature, in providential history, and in the moral law within the heart, whereby all persons and all, at all times and all places gain a rudimentary understanding of the Creator and his moral demands. So, general revelation in Scripture. Does anybody know what, what would you include in general revelation? Like, somebody, I know that y'all have heard of that. What, what are the... Usually we include two, there's a third. But what... Does anybody want to take a shot at that? What, if somebody asks you, what is general revelation, what would, might you tell them? Okay, creation, nature. What else? And then we'll look at the text where we get that from. What else? Crea- uh, nature, creation. Well, let me add two, and we'll look at this. Conscience and providence. Providence is a revelation of God available to all men. We'll look at that. Creation. Uh, well, where's the first place your mind, what text does your mind jump to? Romans 1.18. Romans 1.18. Right? God says... That uh, all men are without excuse because uh, that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. So that they are without excuse. God has revealed himself in creation. Psalm 19, behold, the heavens are doing what? Constantly. Right. Constantly declaring or proclaiming the glory of God. They're constantly doing that. Calvin said wonderfully that you can't look anywhere. There's nothing that your eye can meet that doesn't contain some glimpse of the glory of God. Janet. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm.
Yeah, good. Mm -hmm. Good good question, and that's the question that we often go to, isn't it? Well, what about the person who's never heard of Christ? Well, let me start with this. And particularly since the coming of Christ, Ephesians or Acts 4.12 says this, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name among men given to men by which a man may be saved. That faith... That salvation comes through faith, and that faith is in Christ and what God has done in Christ. So there is nobody out there. That, that's why evangelism is as important as it is, right? That's why Paul, and, and the missionary, went and gave his life, and why other believers have throughout the ages, to go and reach these lost people. If, we, if there were another way, then leave them alone. They're better of not having heard, because it's only going to increase their judgment if they reject. Right? So... There is salvation in no one else other than through Christ. There is no salvation other than through faith in Christ. That's Romans 10. How will they hear unless they're sent? And then what are they going to do? What message do they bring? Christ. And what is the hope? That they'll call on the name of the Lord and be saved. Right? So there is no salvation outside of Christ. So there's no lost group of people out in the middle of the jungle who might respond to creation and be saved. That's not God's redeeming activity for now, right now. So, and we hear wonderful stories just to see how God does do that when someone is his elect of missionaries going and finding a tribe out in the middle of the woods, creating a language, and the whole tribes get saved. You hear those stories. Why? Well, because God found them because they were his. And what did he do? He brought them the message of his son. And he created faith in them in his son, and they believed and they were saved. And there's tremendous, tremendous stories um, of that. So that's where the starting point is. The question then is, then how will God hold them accountable for their sin? Isn't that partly what we're asking? How will God hold them? So they cannot be saved apart from the message of Christ. God will send them that message. That's why he says, go into all of the world. I'm Lord of heaven and earth. Go into all of the nations. Why? Because the nations need to hear the truth about Christ. I think I would as a footnote to that, and this is where we humble ourselves before God, and I don't say these things glibly or lightly because they are weighty, weighty, weighty truths. But God owes salvation to no man. That's another thing that we have to own. God saved none of the angels, Hebrews 2. He does not give help to angels, but he does give help to humans, to men. That's why he took on flesh and blood. Angels that fell, done. That's it. There's no hope of salvation. They're eternally judged. God could have treated each one of us in that same way and have been just. So we also have to understand that God owes salvation to nobody. Salvation is a gracious act of God. At the cost of his own beloved son and for his own purposes through which he brings a people back to himself that have fallen. And he calls them to himself and he calls them to faith and union and relationship with himself through the Son, by the Spirit. So those are, those are categories we have to have clear in our mind as we think through this question. There's only salvation in Christ. God owes salvation to nobody. Nobody. Uh, thirdly, then what our question is, is, well, how can God hold them accountable? How can God hold them accountable for rejecting 
him when he's never revealed himself or revealed Christ to them? Well, that's what Paul is addressing. That's what Paul is addressing. He can hold them accountable. Paul, did you want to say something first? Okay, and that's a good point that we're going to come at it from another direction, but that is a, that's an essential point. Right. Yeah. Right, and that, that's a very good point. So did you all catch that? The condemnation is ultimately because of their sin. The fact that they never heard about Christ simply means... And we have to come to grips with this, that God never gave them the opportunity to hear about Christ. And God is sovereign, sovereignly right to do that. Right. So let me, let me come at that same point, but following the, a line of thought there. Okay. Uh, so there's salvation in no one else, because there's no other name among heaven given among men. Uh, God owes salvation to no one. All men are in the condition of sin. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory, which is what Paul's point is. That, that's a condition that's universal to all men, whether you grow up and born into a Christian home in America, or whether you're born into a pagan tribal community out in the deep dark jungles of Africa all born with the same condition of sin okay so that's very important to remember so Paul's point here then is this how is God just to judge them well his argument is because God has revealed himself in creation he's not making that point however with a positive trajectory but with a negative trajectory and that's important to understand. He's not saying that point has been so hopefully they'll believe. He's saying that's why they're rendered inexcusable for not believing. Do you, does that make sense? Because, as he began in verse 18, all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So when we look at those tribal areas, what we see is a suppression of the truth that is revealed to them, and they're suppressing it in unrighteousness because of their sin, which they have and which we all have. And so he goes on, and we won't read the whole passage, but look at verse 25 if you're there. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, or the lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. So when we look at the response of fallen man to the revelation of God in creation, what we see in its various forms is a rejection of the truth of God revealed in creation, which is a means of God exposing the justness of his judgment and holding them accountable, as he said, they are without excuse. So what will happen to them? What about them? They're born a sinner. God has revealed himself in creation because their sin uh, blinds their eyes to the glory of God revealed in creation. God will hold them accountable to that. Let me add a fourth point to that. 
And, and more could be added. Let me add a fourth point. Judgment varies in the degree of its severity. How do we know that? Well, there's other passages, but I'll mention one. We've covered it in Matthew. Woe to you, Chorazon. Woe to you, Bethsaida. Who can finish it? For if the miracles would have occurred in Sodom and Gomorrah, which had occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in dust and ashes. But since you have seen Christ, and you've seen his miracles, and you've heard his teaching, and you have rejected, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah than it will be for you. Why? Because you've had a greater amount of revelation. Luke, I, I hope I don't get this reference wrong. I think it's chapter 7. Look it up in your concordance. Remind me. Um, for some reason, this, the reference doesn't stick. Uh, but in Luke, he speaks of the one who knows his master's will and does not do it is worthy of many lashes. The one who does not know his master's will and doesn't do it is worthy of few lashes. In other words... God establishes the degree and intensity of judgment based on the amount of knowledge that is sinned against. So, the other side of that question then, which is an excellent question and a very important one, is this, that their judgment will be less, and this is a helpful thing to take the conversations when they come, their judgment will be less than, let's say, for example, an American or someone maybe in Europe in certain parts that have had exposure, some exposure to the truth. So the judgment will be less for that person in Africa than the one who has heard the gospel, lived in an environment where they could easily believe the gospel and have examples of it lived out before them and reject it. And so an important thing, just when we think of evangelism, is to help that person understand that's a good question, and it's a fair question, and we, we need to answer that. But, speaking now to that person, but you need to understand that your accountability is greater. Because if you reject this truth that you've had clearly explained to you, your judgment will be greater. You've had more truth that you've sinned against. You have more light that you're rejecting by your darkness. So, that's how an answer. Does that answer your question at all? Does that help? Is there anything left gap in there that, okay. Again, more could be said, but that, I think, is sufficient. Um, that's general revelation. So creation, you can look at those other verses um, that are there. Uh, creation is, uh, is one very important aspect. Conscience is another. So if you're there in Romans chapter 2, and we have only a few minutes. We won't really get much any further than this. Uh, but Romans 2, uh, he says this, that when Gentiles who do not... Have the law, do instinctively the things of the law, these not having a law, the law unto themselves, or law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. Simplified, God has given us a conscience. Yes, this conscience is marred, this conscience can be hardened. This conscience is ill-informed. That's why we need the truth of God. And yet, undeniably, there is a basic level, a rudimentary, a fundamental level of morality that every human being has, as perverted as that can get in different contexts. But a basic sense of morality that every human being has that is a consequence, a part of the reality of being made in the image of God. So that conscience, in connection with creation, 
should, if it were not for the effects of sin, be enough to lead us as human beings to worship our Creator and to walk in a way that pleases Him and to want to walk in a way that pleases Him. That's what it should do apart from the effects that sin brings to us in our human condition, our fallen human condition. So that is the answer to why God is just, that Paul is arguing in condemning all men. And then he makes it more specific, of course, mixed in there with those particularly who have received the special revelation of the law. Let me give a third category of general revelation, providence. Now, we may not often think of providence, and this is uh, connected somewhat to creation, uh, but let me read just to to you one verse. In chapter 2 of Philippians, or excuse me, I'm sorry, Acts 14. I was thinking something else. Acts 14. Paul is now proclaiming the gospel to um, pagan people. And what does he do? They wanna, now they want to come. They've seen some miracle. They want to come and they want to make him God. Him and Barnabas. They want to make them and treat them as gods. And so Paul is horrified by this act. They've seen some the power of God in them. They equate that with their own false deities. They want to transfer their worship to Paul and Barnabas. And Paul is horrified by that. Now, how does he answer them? What does he say? What does uh, Paul cry out to them in verses 15 through 17? Uh, in Acts 14. He says this. In 15, he says, Now men... Why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you and preach the gospel to you that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. What is he appealing to? Creation. We're human nature, but there is a God who is our creator. This God is the one who through us is bringing his word to you and the message of redemption to you. He goes on, in the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own way. And yet he did not leave himself without witness. So God gave a witness. This creator God, from whom all of us are, and Paul's not setting himself apart. He's saying, look, yeah, I may have been a Jewish rabbi, but I'm I'm a man like you are. And this God who created both of us has revealed himself and he's given witness to himself. Now, what is this witness? This witness is this. In that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even saying these things with difficulty, they restrained the crowds from offering sacrifice to them. In other words, Paul is appealing to the fact that not only has God created you and given evidence in creation, he's constantly bearing witness to himself and how he provides for you through this creation. In Acts 17, he talks about the nations who were made from one man, whom God has providentially set the boundaries of these nations, the times of their existence. And he's done so so that men might seek God. They might see his providential hand and realize there is a God over the nations. This is the God we need to worship. So in Acts 17, he says that to the philosophers in Athens. So providence is another aspect of God's general uh, revelation. And providence includes not only his continually sustaining creation, as Paul mentions here, it's also, as he mentions in Acts 17, his rulership over that creation and how he works among men. This is general revelation. Well, we don't have any more uh, time with this. Let me just mention this. 
briefly. So, um, uh, let's see. well, special revelation. Now, opposed to general revelation, we have special revelation. The special revelation is what we have here. There's special revelation mentioned, well, we see it throughout the Old Testament, mentioned concisely in Hebrews chapter 1. God, in former times, spoke to the prophets and the through dreams and visions and through the prophets and so on. And these last days and these final days has spoken to us how? In, in a son, in a son. And the revelation of all of that is recorded for us here in a book. And that is special revelation. So while general revelation can reveal much to us and... If you, and I mention this because you might hear it, that's sometimes a discussion that goes in the realm of natural theology. Uh, but special revelation is God's specific revelation of himself to us in Scripture. That's how we know he's a trinity. That's how we know of his, more specifically, of his nature. Most importantly, that's how we know of his great plan of redemption in the Son, his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and how we can be forgiven of our sins and how we can know him and walk with Him in this world, and live with Him eternally in fellowship through the Son, by the Spirit, uh, forever in a place called heaven. And of course, many other things. Well, I hope that's an encouragement and a help. We are out of time, so let's pray and uh, ask God's blessing on the rest of our service. Father, we thank You for Your great gift to us of Your Word. But that Word is, finds its glory in that it reveals to us Your Son and your great work of redemption in him, that we as sinners can be forgiven of our sin. We can be made clean and new. We can made, be made in the Son, and those who know you are made in the Son, blameless before you, our condemnation removed, being removed, having fallen on him, our death replaced by your life in him and by the Spirit. And we ask you to help us to love you more. Help us to get a greater sense of the glorious truth of what we have in our hands in your word. And may we ever and increasingly know your son more and more and by him and through him know you more and more and worship you with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind, obeying you and trusting you in every area of life until we're finally with you forever in our eternal home. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.